You are listening to Seize the Day with Natalie Miller-Snell. During these podcasts, we'll be exploring all of the different opportunities that we get to seize the day on a daily basis and what tools and what changes we can make in order to grab those goals. Are you ready to make change? Hello, 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 podcast lovers. How are you all? It's Thursday, I'm Natalie and you are listening to Seize the Day. Now I have an enormous treat for you today. I've got a guest on who's pretty epic. She's a legend and she's got an accolade list that is outstanding. So let me try to get through it all. A former surgeon who is now a full-time author, publisher and president of Bold Stroke Books. She has over 50 published novels of her own as well as dozens of short stories. She's been a finalist and won the Lambda Literary Award in Romance many times. A member of Saints and Sinners, Saints and Sinners, a member of Saints and Sinners Literary Hall of Fame. She's been an independent publisher's award winner several times and the list just goes on. Please put your hands together for the incredible Radcliffe. Round of applause. That's outstanding. How are you Radcliffe? Good morning. I'm really well thank you and hello to everyone. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, Do you know it's an absolute treat to have you on. I'm really grateful that you uh, agreed to come on the show because I know it's early for you as well. It's what did you say about eight in the morning is it? It's eight in the morning and bright and sunny over here. It looks it. Now, for everyone who's listening, where are you recording from? Where, where can everyone find you at the moment? Where are you? I am in upstate New York in the U.S. Very lovely. And we might hear some, did you say some uh, birds in the background? Or? Oh, my roosters and chickens are out running around right outside the office building, and they're pretty noisy this time of day. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. I love it. Now, we met very briefly at GCLS this year, back in July. Um, got to catch up with you, yeah, j- just briefly, and you signed a book, which was lovely. And I asked Radcliffe if she'd like to come on the show, because when I started this show back, goodness, it was July last year, so it's a little over a year ago. I wanted, the, the goal for me was to help people recognise uh, how wonderful they are. Um, and in this world, we all struggle time to time to find, uh, you know, we have self-doubt and self-acceptance. And I wanted to host a show to share all of the wonderful information that I've learned throughout my life from great mentors and, and so on, and help people seize opportunities in their life and grab the goals. And I also wanted to celebrate women leaders and trailblazers and folk who have been paving the way. And you, Radcliffe, are one of those individuals. So it's fantastic to have you on. And, you know, without further ado, let's get stuck in. Now, we'll obviously get onto your books because just going through that accolade is absolutely impressive. But it's also, I mean, I'm really interested to know about how it all started. And because you're a former surgeon, as I mentioned, was that your dream to be a surgeon, dream to be a writer? How did it all start back there? What did you study? Just start right at the beginning. Okay, well, the beginning, I guess I would be about eight years old. Um, About that time, I've always been a reader since the time I was, you know, obviously old enough to carry a book around. And um, my mom has pictures of me when I was like two with, you know, the little golden books that kids, we called them golden books over here. They're like, you know, books for children. But by the time I was eight, I had started reading just about everything I could find. And I had read this book. It was called Dr. Kate. And it was one of those biographies for kids that you could get out of the school libraries. And it was a story of a female doctor who lived, um, in the probably early 1900s in the American West. And basically she was 
one of the first female doctors. It's a true story, actually. And um, she did house calls and went from farm to farm and family to family. And I thought that was really amazing. And by that time, I knew that there were certain things I really liked. I loved everything about school, didn't matter what it was, English, history, math, science, but I really loved math and science a lot. And I knew that I wanted to do something like that. And when I read that book, that's when I decided that I wanted to be a doctor. And I never varied from that, from the time I was literally about eight, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And the idea of being a writer never, ever occurred to me. I grew up in a little um, town in upstate New York, fairly small. The village was about 10,000 people. It was rural, but we lived in the town. And when I was growing up, I'm a baby boomer, so that kind of dates me. And there weren't (laughs) a lot of options that were obvious for girls in terms of what you could be when you grew up. And there were certain things that I couldn't quite see myself doing. And one of them, and not to belittle or put down any sort of career choice, but I tried to envision myself in my mom's life. And my mother was an amazing woman, um, and but she was a homemaker. And that was everything that was important to her was taking care of the home. And I tried to see myself doing that, and I couldn't quite make that picture because I just, And I think probably I was eight years old, you know, and I didn't have any idea that I was actually a lesbian, but the pictures around me didn't fit. And I was looking for a picture that did fit. And this book gave me that picture. And from there, that sort of defined everything that I became. So I went to college, I went to medical school, and I became a surgeon because that was the the image that fit me growing up that made sense to me for my life. And... I never thought about being a writer because those pictures weren't available to me. I didn't know anyone or couldn't conceive of anyone who did that as their, as their life's goal. Um, no one ever said, you know, this is something that you could do or you could be. I love to write. I wrote stories from the time I was 10 years old um, for my own amusement. I was not a solitary kid, but my, I'm, my brother is 10 years older than me, so I kind of grew up little bit on my own. I had friends, but I also spent a lot of time in books. So I wrote stories um, with girls as the heroes. And I wrote science fiction, I wrote plays, I wrote all kinds of things just because it was fun. And because I would create these worlds where I could see myself in ways that I couldn't see myself in the world around me. And eventually, as I grew older, I began to write stories about women loving women, because I wasn't seeing those stories either. But it never still occurred to me that I would share those stories with anyone else. They were just for me. They were kind of a way that I could create the things that I wanted to see or experience or feel. And by the time I actually became published, I had eight completed full-length manuscripts that I had written over a period of probably 15 years. Wow. That's absolutely incredible. I mean, that journey is incredible. It really is. Listening to what you've got to say. And well, I mean, first off, you're a very driven woman. And, you know, that's very that's very evident to have a vision and a goal from reading in the book 
and then follow that journey through. I mean, that's seizing the day, that's taking opportunities, that's, uh, you know, pushing yourself to what you want to do. Uh, but to then in the background still write. So you've got that creative flow or gene or desire to write, to express yourself in that way, you know, to, to fulfill whatever needs you have. So back in the surgery days, did you love the surgery? I, I, I loved I loved being a doctor. When I first went to medical school, my vision, in fact, was that I would become a family practitioner like I had read about Dr. Kate. But okay. it, like so many things, until you experience them, you don't know if the fit is actually quite right. And it wasn't for me. I'm the sort of person that likes to impact my environment at, directly if I can. And the, my first day on surgery, I realized this is what I wanted to do because it's very direct. You do things, you touch people, you actually physically intervene in what's happening. So for me, there was no delay between what needed to be done and doing it. That's like surgery is, is a form of action. So I, I loved everything about being a surgeon. The, I probably, well, I don't know. I don't know if I would have retired when I did. I practiced after my training for 20 years. Wow. In the United States, unlike many other places in the world, medicine is delivered a lot differently. Um, and there's been a lot of changes happening here in the US in the last 20, 25 years in terms of how people actually um, receive medical care. And there's a lot of control that's been taken away from the medical profession and given over to insurance companies and third parties. And the gist of it is, is that we lost a lot of the control over caring for patients. And it was really, for those of us who had come from a time when we didn't have to get permission to treat people, it was a very difficult change. I can imagine, yeah. It was, it was really hard for me to make that adjustment. And at about the same time, I was writing more and I had begun to publish. So my careers were starting to intersect and overlap. So I actually was still practicing full time when I started publishing. And wow. I had been publishing full-time for about five years. Um, so I was actually doing two full-time jobs. I was writing full-time and I was practicing surgery full-time. And at just about that point where everything was intersecting, my spouse had finished her postdoc and had accepted a position in upstate New York and we were living in Pennsylvania. So we okay. needed to move. And that was the perfect time for me to basically retire from surgery. And I started the publishing company at the same time and basically retired from one full-time career. And then now I have two other full-time careers as a publisher and an author. So it was a perfect storm. It was just the right time for all those things to happen. That's, but that's incredible. Perfect time. But you also lead that way as well, because had you not written your stories leading up to that, you might not necessarily been in that. I'm sure you would have got yourself there because, like I say, you, you, you've, you know what you want and you seem to drive that way, which is incredible. So and listening to what you have to say as well, going from having that hands on that control and actually having an immediate impact within the surgery days mm -hmm. to then having less opportunity to, I suppose, to make good almost and to do you know, good within the world, you naturally then drive with the writing, which is then having an enormous impact within community and within people's lives. So actually you've gone from 
one good delivery straight into another one. When I say straight, it's a lot of hard work. <laughs> it didn't happen overnight. So absolutely, I mean, it's fabulous. Really, really admirable, very inspiring. And so many seize the day opportunities there. So Bold Stroke Books was born at the end of the surgery. And why did you go into a publishing house? Why did you want to develop the publishing house? Because it didn't exist at the time or? No, well, I had had Bold Strokes. I started Bold Strokes Books in July of 2004. Okay. By that time, I had had experience with various types of publishing models. My first book was accepted for publication in 2000 and published in 2001. Um, that was um, with Renaissance Alliance Publishing. And Regal Crest, they have several, that was a subdivision of Regal Crest Enterprises. Um, and I had no intention of publishing, I think, as I mentioned, I had written these books, but I really hadn't planned on publishing anything. And in the late 1990s, I got very interested in X-Files fan fiction. And I started writing fan fiction online, which is the first time that I had ever actually shared my writing with a larger, you know, population beyond my, you know, best friends, which would have been like two people. Um, so I had gotten experience writing and sharing my work. And then I developed a website and put some of my original fiction, which wasn't fan fiction, on my website for people to read. And that's how I got published because several publishers contacted me and said, we would like to publish this book that you have online. And I wasn't entirely certain that I wanted to do that because this was a an entirely different way of presenting my work. And it also meant giving it over to a different process, you know, giving okay. up some of the control over my work. Being published necessitates giving up a little bit of control. But I decided to do it and I've never been sorry that I did. It was a really incredible experience and I learned a lot about publishing. And I also learned throughout those first few years what was possible and what was potentially possible if things were a little bit different. And what I wanted to do in establishing Bold Strokes Books was to establish a publishing company that used a mainstream model and all of the tools that were available to mainstream authors to promote queer fiction. I felt that we still weren't reaching as much of the audience as we could because we didn't have the infrastructure to do that. And that was my desire, was to make a company that basically could use all the tools that were available to other publishing houses to get our authors the kind of exposure that they deserved. So that's why I started the company. That's always been our mission, if, if you okay. will. Um, and so far, 15 years later, we've been doing pretty well at it. Well, 15 years. I mean, that's a fabulous number as well. That's absolutely brilliant. And I think it's fair to say, certainly from what I see on the Internet and, uh, you know, engaging in conversation with readers, you've had a huge impact in people's lives from the books that you've written, plus obviously with the, the publishing house as well. Enormous change around that time in terms of what you've delivered out to the community what's been made available, and also given folk a sense of inclusion, I suppose, or I'm okay, I belong, I can identify with somebody. How, how does that feel? It must blow your mind sometimes. 
Well, I'm constantly amazed. I mean, being an author is a very solitary process because most of what you do, you do by yourself. Um, You know, there's this old saying that, you know, you work alone in a room. And you do, whether it's a mental room or a physical room, it's a very solitary thing. And then somehow what you've produced goes out and you don't know where it's going and you don't know who's going to receive it. If anyone's going to receive it, is anybody going to read this? And then you discover that people do and that you get very personal emails and messages from people. And every time I do, and it's been years and hundreds, perhaps thousands of messages, it's like the first time. It's like, this is amazing. I mean, someone, someone, one individual somewhere read what I wrote and it meant something to them. And every time that happens, to me, it's like this touch. It's like this direct communication between myself and another human being, and that's amazing. For me, it's a lot like what surgery was. It's a very intimate process. I love that connection, actually, that you just made. And you can see it, the, the hands-on. What, what did you say earlier? It's having the touch and being able to intervene and being involved, and it's exactly the same for you now. I love that. Absolutely fabulous. And how have you found the change in... I suppose the the volume, I suppose, of Lesvik, the different type of books that we've go, got going out now and the, the, the variety and the, the greater inclusion as well, which is necessary uh, with over the 15 years, you must have seen quite a lot of change. It's, it's been amazing, really. The volume, well, publishing, nothing happens in isolation and, and everything is connected. Pu- the greater publishing world has changed tremendously over the course of the last 15 years. I mean, technology has changed, how we deliver content has changed. And along with that, how we deliver, how we interact with the community, what people are interested in reading, what they demand to read, all of those things have gotten bigger. And I think that what's impressed me the most is not just the volume, but as you said, the diversity. I think that our literature and this is really essential, I think, for us to remain viable, has to change as our, as our society changes, as our, as our culture changes, as what we are doing as a community changes, so that now we're seeing this explosion of diversity within our work. And I think that's because, turn on the television, read the newspaper, look at a magazine, you know, read something online, everything is connected. And we have to be responsive in terms of what we write in order to reach people about the things that really matter in today's world. So yes, there's been tremendous changes because socioculturally everything has changed so quickly. It really has. In such a short period of time. It's amazing. So what we're writing is more diverse. Our subgenres are very diverse now. There are things that that we write that were not being published 25 years ago. Um, because these are the things that people care about and are interested in, and we're responding to that. It's a, it's a symbiotic association between who reads and who writes and, and what we communicate. That communication and that connection as well. So going back to your earlier days and the, the emails that you've you got, I suppose in terms of the social media and how all that works now, it's an entirely different way of communicating with the reader and the conferences and the GCLSs of this world, which are great. How do you find those? I suppose they're an integral part of writing and distributing now as well. Uh, I, there's nothing more enjoyable to me than, than speaking face-to-face with readers. 
I mean, I think that is still, without a doubt, the, the most fun thing to do. Um, this is, I mean, what we're doing now is very much an extension of that process. Absolutely, I yeah. I think there's an exchange of energy that happens when you talk to the people that are actually reading what you write and are responding to what you've written. I always like to ask people, you know, I try to always turn it around and ask the readers what they want to read or what interests them because I think it's it's a two-way street. You know, I think that there are writers who write because they like to write. And but there are when you become a published author, you have to start thinking about the audience at the other end and it adds an entirely different dimension to your process. So that it's not just about you anymore. It's about you and the reader. It becomes a, a two-way street. So knowing what readers, how they feel and what they think about, um, that, that inspires as well as helps to shape sometimes what you're doing. So I, I love face-to-face -face events. I think they're really important. And, and on that, how do you find your inspiration for books? Is it based on your own experiences or a little bit of interaction or? Well, I couldn't possibly write anything that didn't interest me. So everything <laughs> that I write is something that I want to explore. And it's usually a relationship that I want to explore. Because everything that I write, I, I write romances, which are basically stories about interpersonal relationships. That's what a romance is. It's the story of people connecting to people, which is why I write them. And it doesn't matter if it's a paranormal romance or a sci-fi fantasy romance or a contemporary romance. It's about people. And that's what interests me. Every book that I write, it's about a relationship that I'm interested in exploring. And I do certainly pay attention to what readers seem to be interested in. But I don't write just because someone else wants to read it. I have to write it because yeah. I'm interested in telling that story. So yeah. that, that's how I kind of decide what I'm going to work on. No, I get that. You've got to be passionate about something, haven't you? Otherwise, it's not going to translate. You're not going to feel the emotion. It doesn't come through. If someone writes a book just because they think it's going to quote unquote sell, it usually lacks something. Um, there has to be an element of personal passion injected into a work in order for it to really resonate, I think, with readers at the other end. I mean, yeah. that, that's what readers are looking for, is that emotional connection. And if you can't get that into the book, it's just, it could be the most perfectly written book in the world. But perfect writing does not make a great story. You've got to have the emotion. Yeah, now I see that. Um, okay, so you mentioned in terms of genres, romance is your definite, I mean, that's, Radcliffe Romance, you, you, you've got that wax. You do that so well. <laughs> the paranormal, love those as well. I love the fact that the the area that the wolves lived in is actually a real place, which I discovered when I was visiting the States. Absolutely fabulous. Uh, but you mentioned sci-fi earlier. So you wrote sci-fi. Is that something you would ever look to explore or go into? Or Well, I think about it now and then, but you know, it's really hard to write. Um, writing sci-fi is a real challenge and because you've got to create an entirely different world and there's a lot of technology associated with good science fiction. And I think paranormal probably is as far from the real world I'm going to go because I just don't think I, I don't think I have quite the, the experience in reading or probably 
imagination to do really good sci-fi, but I love reading it. Yeah. I'm more, I'm much more towards the fantasy paranormal side of things um, in terms of what I feel comfortable writing. And on that, do you see yourself writing some more? I mean, you write under different pen names. I wrote um, The Paranormal Romances as L.L. Rand because at the time I had written probably 35 romances, either romantic intrigue or contemporary romance as Radcliffe. And I knew that writing paranormal was going to be a fairly big departure and that a lot of readers don't cross over. Some, a lot of readers are not interested in reading paranormal. So I didn't want someone to pick up a novel by me and find out that, oh, it's a completely different kind of book and, and not like it at all. I try not to laugh. I'm just imagining that one page you've got a wolf happening. I have readers tell me straight up, that's not why I read Radcliffe and I'm not going to read them. And it's like, okay, I get that. I totally get it. I understand it. I knew that was going to be the case. But I also didn't want to like send a book out there under false pretenses. So what we did was we, I changed my pen name, but we published with the cover Radcliffe writing as, so that my readers who would cross over would know it was me. Um, but the readers who didn't want to read Paranormal wouldn't pick up a book they didn't want and feel that, you know, they'd, they'd purchase something that they didn't want to read. Someone's put the wrong cover on a Radcliffe book. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. And it's as to be, as I totally expected, they sold quite a bit less than my contemporary romances or my romantic intrigue because there are just different genres sell differently. Some, some genres have a much larger reading population than others. But that was okay. I anticipated that. And actually, over time, they've act, over a lot longer than normal, they've reached practically the same level. Do you, I mean, this could be a tricky question for you. What was the easiest book that you found to write out of your, I mean, you've got so many. Can you even think about one book? Well, I can tell you right off, none of them are easy. <laughs> um, I think probably, I think my earliest books were easiest because I didn't know very much at the time. An expectation maybe is not there. I really wrote instinctually. I didn't, um, I didn't think about the process as much as I do now. And I think that that's good and bad. I think that knowing more about writing helps you write better books. But I think it also slows down your process because you're thinking about the writing more than just writing. Um, most people recommend that you should write your first draft without thinking about anything. Just write it out as fast as you can. Don't worry about whether it's garbage or not, and then go back. And that allows you to sort of like be as creative as possible without imposing structure on the work. I'm sort of halfway in between because that process itself doesn't work for me. I, I really don't have time to write a crappy first draft. <laughs> I, I actually have to write a, a really solid first draft because if you write a lot, you don't have a whole lot of time to go back and rework a draft three or four times. So my process is slightly slower because it's a lot more structured than it was at the beginning. So the early books, Love's Melody Lost, um, Love's Tender Warriors was probably one of my easiest books to write because I was writing um, a martial arts story and I was training at the time and a lot of it was based on what I was actually doing. 
So that one was pretty easy to write, but I think they were also easier because I was a lot less sophisticated in my writing at the time. You know, okay. we all change as time goes on. I mean, if you don't change, you're not learning anything. Quite. If you don't move what you've got to change. I mean, we were just talking earlier about the, the world itself. It's evolved. You have to move along with it. I totally agree. Every author's books, if you go back and look at their first books, they'll be good if they're good authors, but they won't be as good as what they're writing in, in today because we all improve. If you're working yeah. on your craft, you're going to get better as time goes on. And on that, how many books do you write a year then? I have been writing three full-length novels a year up until... Wow. This year, I only wrote two in a novella. So I wrote slightly less this year. But I have written currently actually over 60. So I've, um, I haven't really slowed down much, but I've given myself a little more time between books. <laughs> That's it's absolutely amazing. Um, and now, can we talk very quickly about the RWA, the Romance Writers of America? You recently, was it the Trailblazer Award? Yes. Yes, absolutely amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. For everyone listening, how important is that award in terms of community, acknowledgement, recognition, and what that is to the bigger LGBTQ community? Well, Romance Writers of America is the largest, the largest organization in the world which, which exists to support authors, romance authors. They are, that is their entire goal. Um, it's huge. Their annual meetings are probably um, four or 5,000 people. The organization <gasps> itself is, I don't know, 10,000, maybe more. They have chapters throughout the world. Um, and it's a mainstream organization. And when I first started going, which was probably 2006, I think, um, there were no... LGBT publishing houses recognized by the RWA. And Bold Strokes was one of the first. And you basically have to go through a process to prove that you're a legitimate publisher and that you, you know, take good care of your authors and they look at your contracts and a whole lot of things. And I was really, really pleased for them to recognize Bold Strokes books as a, you know, an RWA publishing, recognized publishing house. And I was kind of like this invisible person when I first started going. I felt it was really important, critical, that LGBT authors, that, that the authors that I was going to publish had every advantage that any other author in the world had, that we deserve to be at the big table with everybody. That, yes, wow. we are a niche in the sense that we are a a genre that almost stands outside every other genre. You know, some people say, is lesbian romance a subgenre? Well, yes and no, because lesbian romance covers every genre. We have contemporary romance and paranormal and sci-fi and fantasy and, and every genre under our umbrella. So it almost puts us in a, in a separate column. But be that as it may, I wanted our authors to have the same kind of recognition. And the only way to do that is to be part of the bigger publishing world. So um, I continued to go and participate and I was on several panels over the years and eventually became a little bit more visible and part of the organization. I did not expect to have, to be recognized this year. Um, the RWA has made a huge push 
towards diversity, to be more inclusive in terms of gender, in terms of race, um, in terms of the works that are recognized, the authors who are recognized. And this year they made an enormous push to, to really create more visible diversity. And they, um, the MC Sarah McLean contacted me in June and said that they wanted to recognize not just individuals, but entire groups of authors who had not been recognized by the organization or by the greater publishing world, um, including LGBT authors. And so she asked me if I would speak and that, you know, that that's how it came about. Honestly, absolutely fantastic. I listened to your speech. I thought it was marvelous, really very inspiring. And I think listening to what you've just said then as well and I, I totally agree with you lesbian fiction whilst it's a you know it, it covers many genres but it's almost looked at independently mm. it shouldn't be you know the the fact that it's two uh, you know women loving women or whatever the, the storyline might be is all it should almost be incidental to the main genre and brought in so I totally agree with you and it's fabulous that it's being recognized and you know you're paving the way in that sense so congratulations oh, thank you Absolutely amazing. Right, okay, here goes some fun and interesting questions for you. Uh, what's the last book you read? Okay, let me see. That would have been yesterday. Which one? Do- oh, <laughs> J.D. Robb, Vengeance and Death. Nice, lovely. Okay. Um, what do you like to do to unwind? Jigsaw puzzles. Do you? Oh, brilliant. I, I do love like them. a jigsaw. Well. I mean, totally. I always have one going, always. Really? Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. I'm just linking the surgery. Pieces going together. Yeah, I get it. I like it. What is your favorite color? Red. Uh, now, you exercise, we mentioned earlier. I don't know if it was off the podcast or in the podcast. Um, what's your favorite? What, what do you enjoy to exercise? Do you run or what do you like to do? Um, my, I guess I do run. And that's my favorite form of exercise because it's the most efficient. The one I enjoy the most is anything on the water. I have a kayak. I have a single person open water skull. Um, so I, I like to, to paddle and be on the water. Are you near water where you live? We have a lake house that's an hour away. Ah. So, um, and it's on a very, it's on Lake Champlain, which is a huge lake in New York, which actually extends all the way to Canada. But where our house is, it's on a little estuary. So it's very secluded. It's in the Adirondacks. I can see Sylvan and the wares right across the water. (laughs) No, it really is surrounded by Adirondack Forest. And we have we have twelve acres of forest and lakefront. So it's very secluded. Sounds delightful. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Um and from your books, this might be a tricky one because this is like choosing children. But what's your favorite? Or do you have a favorite couple? Everybody asks me that and I never have an answer because I don't really you know, they're all when I'm writing them, they're my favorite couple because yeah. they're the ones I, that I am most intimately related to right at that moment. In terms of the easiest couples to write are the ones I know best. I mean, I just finished another in the honor series and um, Blair and Cam are really easy for me to write because I know them really well. I mean, someone asked, well, how do you keep the characters straight? And I would admit that I forget things like eye color, not theirs, but when I'm writing like a follow-up, I might forget eye color or hair color, but I don't forget their personalities. They are as, I could write a sequel to any book I've written 
and I would know those characters right away. So I don't actually have favorites because they're all alive for me. And, and hang on, did you just say you've written another honor book? I did. And it's going to be released when? In November. Oh, wow. Cost of Honor. That's going to make a lot of folk happy. It's, it's, a big, it's a big book. It's actually a triple crossover. There are a lot of Justice um, series characters in it because it takes place in Philadelphia. And so the Justice characters have a very large part in it. There's a cameo with Ali uh, Torvo from Trauma Alert. So it's kind of like I, I just decided if I was going to set it in Philadelphia where I had multiple series, I was going to bring it all together. How fabulous. Oh, that's going to make a lot of people happy. I hope so. Because <laughs> it killed me. So. It was really hard. It was like I didn't think that <laughs> book was ever going to end. There was so much story going on. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, I should have asked you earlier then what was the most tricky, but I suppose trying to bring one. books together. That was yeah. really hard. And that's out November. Lovely. Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned, forgive me, is it chickens or roosters Both. that you've got? Both. Okay. Do you have names for them all? No. Um, there's too many now. I have, I have over 50 birds, so wow. um, I don't name them. They're mostly all, you know, all the roosters end up being named Rue, and um, the chickens <laughs> I don't name. I do have goats, and they all have names. I have seven goats, and they all have names. And I have cats, and they have names, and dogs and horses, and they all have names, but not the chickens, too many of them. <laughs> Can you tell us some of the goats' names? Uh, let's see. There's Gabriel, Annabelle, Gracie, Finnegan, Maisie, Ebenezer, and Pablo. Wow. I love it. Absolutely love it. That most of them, some of them were named, I get them from a breeder who is actually a nun at a convent down the road. Wow. And they support their convent by breeding cashmere goats, whose fleece is actually cashmere. So every spring we comb our goats out and their fleece is cashmere, which the nuns then spin into cashmere wool. Is that, is that cool or what? Wow, that's amazing. And, and do they then sell it on or do, what they do they use it, that for? They sell it. So that goes into the community. Fabulous. Love it. Yeah. That is absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's pretty neat. They're really cool goats too. They get all fluffy and when you feel them, you can feel the cashmere in their fleece. It's amazing. Wow. wow. I love it. The right touch. Certain days. <laughs> got the good, good hands. Um, right. Okay. I ask everybody these two questions. What's the last image you took on your photo stream on your phone? My chicks. I have 17 small babies now that are five <gasps> weeks old. So I'm always taking pictures and boring all my friends. That's brilliant. That's so cute. Yeah. I have a lot of my children on. So it's probably the same thing, I suppose. <laughs> And what is your, well, you might not use these, but what is your most used emoji? Um, the, the, the little wry face that no one's been able to figure out if it means they're about to throw up or they're drunk. It's the new, oh. it's the new emoji. You know, the one that's got the really weird grin, that one. Oh, the w wiggly face. Oh, I like that one. Yeah. That one. I think it's quite expressive. I like that. Oh, okay. I like that too. Good, good, good. I'll think of Radcliffe every time I look at, at that one now. <laughs> This has been delightful. Thank you so much. So to wrap it up, and since this is a Caesar Day theme and, you know, your life is, there's so much evidence within your life of how you've grabbed opportunities and you've taken advantage and you've pushed through a level of confidence maybe or just direction in terms of what you've, you've known you've wanted to do. For all of our listeners and the listeners on Caesar Day, 
what advice would you give them in order that they can go out and seize the, you know, grab goals, seize an opportunity, something they've wanted to do all their life, maybe write a book, maybe do a parachute jump. Uh, what kind of advice would you give them if they're lacking a bit of confidence or just to go out and do it? Well, I won't be disingenuous enough to say, well, you just have to try because I think people do try all the time and, and can't always accomplish it. I think one needs support. I think that sharing your dream is maybe one of the first steps in that in order to sometimes in order to accomplish a dream, you need to be encouraged from outside. Yes, you have to try, but I think you also have to explore all the avenues. There may be there may be routes you haven't taken. And I think that sharing with the people close to you what you really care about and what you really want may help you get the support you need to get there. You know, I love that. And what I love about this show, when I ask everybody this question, everybody comes to it with a slightly different angle. And I think what you've just said there is very important because we have these goals, we have these visions, we have these dreams. And sometimes you can verbalise it and someone might just have the, a tiny suggestion or a thought on it that can literally just then boom, send it atmospheric almost or really help you along the way. So I think that's a fabulous bit of advice and it helps you almost process sometimes as well. I like that. I like that a lot. Where can everybody find you, Radcliffe? Website, Twitter, Instagram? Um, on my Facebook, which is just Radcliffe. I don't know what it is. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> my website is radfic.com. R-A-D-F-I-C.com is my website. And okay. goldstrokesbooks.com is our publishing website, and all my books are there. And if I could remember how you found me on Facebook, I could tell you that. Because I have a wall, and I communicate with people there, but I don't know how you get there. <laughs> I'll put it all in the show notes. Don't you worry. That's, that's priceless. I love it. That's brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. It was great. And thanks yeah. to everyone for listening. I was going to say exactly the same thing. Thanks everyone for listening. Take care. Look after yourself. Keep well. You have been listening to Seize the Day with Natalie Miller-Snell. All contact information can be found in the show notes, together with any links to websites I may have referred to in the show. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please pop over to seizethedashday.com where you'll find my other shows and come and talk to me at Twitter or email me on nataliemillersnell at gmail.com. Thank you, thank you, thank you.